As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I have the distinct pleasure today to be with Dr. Kimberly Luce. President of Strategic Ethical Solutions, a best-selling author of two books. One's called Circling the Drain, and one's called Losing Your Job Without Losing Your Mind. We have both of those we'll be discussing today. Also a faculty member of the Talent Magnet Institute. Dr. Luce and I were connected in the past year through serendipity, through mutual connections, bringing us together. And I'm very excited today to welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Mike. I'm so glad to be here. So one of the things that we've been talking a lot about and how timely is this topic with everything that we continue to go through as humans, as leaders, as our listening audience today are trying to lead well in the midst of some situations, you'd say chaos and turmoil. And we're going to talk today about trauma-informed care and what that approach brings to the workplace, why I should care about trauma-informed care, what this means. I mean, I'm very excited to welcome you to educate our audience, to be with us today. To the audience, I encourage you to submit questions, to follow up, to take notes. Please take notes. I think this will be one of the very powerful discussions that you'll remember for the next several months, if not years to come. So without further ado, I'd love to dive in and have you define for us what trauma-informed care means and where this approach has come from and what you've taken away from some of your own experiences and trainings in this space. Sure. So the majority of the training that I have come to know about trauma-informed care, I need to acknowledge the University of Buffalo in New York. They have a school of social work that spun off an institute on trauma-informed care. And they send information out. They, they don't charge for it. Their mission is to just get the information into people's hands. And you can make donations, of course, but they don't charge. And I think that's just amazing that a group of professors are spending their careers defining this with data-driven research that's longitudinal in nature. So they keep building every year on it. The best, in a nutshell, that I can explain what trauma-informed care is, is it's an approach, and it's changing the focus from what's wrong with that person to what has happened to that person, and extending grace to each other, and boy, isn't it timely now, right? As I was anticipating speaking with you today, I just couldn't tear myself away from the TV yesterday because it's additional trauma. So the trauma-informed care, switching your mindset from if somebody comes into your organization on a particular day and they're not pleasant or you have a little dust up, you know, verbal, something goes wrong in a meeting, instead of retreating to a place where you are then swinging as well, you know, can I drop a heavier rock or can I go around the corner and tell a colleague how bad I think this person is or this situation was because that just circles the drain, right? How do we reach out and try to figure out what is happening to that person or that group? So the three different kinds of trauma that I've learned about studying all of this material is the trauma that all of us as humans have. We carry it with us, right? Some people espouse the theory that the first traumatic thing that we go through is being born because how traumatic that is on a baby. So, you know, it depends on who you, but the trauma, and if you think about it like a box, right, you got a box. So you put trauma in there, it gets a little heavier. Something else happens, the death of a parent, the loss of a child, trauma. So that's original triggered trauma that if we don't acknowledge it, and come up with tools that can manage it, we just continue to make 
the box heavier. The second kind is the re-triggering of trauma. And an example that's personal, I use a lot of personal examples in my writings and my, in my teachings. 10 years ago, my children lost a grandmother to cancer, 10 years ago. This summer, their other grandmother was diagnosed with cancer. And I found that they were experiencing all of the trauma from losing the first grandmother and then trying to deal. So that's the re-triggering. So acknowledging when you can tease apart what's new, what's being re-triggered, and how do I deal with it. And the third kind, and I use, I try to stay out of politics, but it's very hard. I use the example of what happened to us when we watched George Floyd be killed on live TV. That kind of trauma is considered a moral injury that you absorb on behalf of what you see happening to somebody else because it's so bad that you have a moral injury to your moral compass, to the difference between right and wrong, and it's so clear. So it's not happening to you, but because we're human beings and hopefully we're empathetic, you can experience that injury on behalf of somebody else that you see being treated badly. When you put this into this context, I hope our, you know, myself, I'm sitting here thinking, so it's life experiences, lived or experienced, seen, heard, that makes us respond certain ways, right? So if we've sat in a, if you've ever been in a meeting, which we all have, where you share something and it triggers an action or a verbal response for a team member, and you think that's not what I meant at all. You know, in many cases, the way that people behave is formed by these life experiences. And, you know, we've talked a lot about empathy in the last year. This is what being empathetic means, right? Which is asking additional questions, listening to what's not just being said, but why it's being said, trying to understand the backstory. When you bring this into the workplace, how have you learned that organizations and leaders can start putting this into action tomorrow? What's some of the first steps and techniques of dealing with stress and trauma in the workplace? So the very first thing, if I go into work with a group, what leadership can choose to do, if you look up psychologically safe spaces, you can just Google it. The first thing you really have to establish is a foundation of trust. You have to create a psychologically safe space so that when you open these doors to discussion, that people feel that they can be vulnerable and that they're not going to have it retaliate around, whipsaw back around on them in some negative way. What I know to be true is one of the biggest monsters under everybody's bed is this isolationism this feeling that you're the only one or that everybody else can do it better in a way that you can't. But if you can make these psychologically safe spaces and start to then get people to share with you, and it just takes the first person and somebody invariably will say, I had no idea. That's how I wrote my first book. I was in front of a group. I was talking about medical imaging of all things. And, you know, whatever you believe that your higher power is, you know, for me, I kept hearing that voice, right, saying, you need to share this personal event that's going on in your life because it was traumatic. And I said, yeah, I'm a little distracted. One of our children has struggled with mental health issues and drug addiction issues, and we're really struggling. I was up through the night. Somebody came down the steps, and she was crying at the break, and she said, me too. I had no idea. I thought I was the only one. And right. So creating those spaces where people feel like they can be safe to share and then learn there's another colleague in the room that's going through the same thing. So there's a bridge now. You're not by yourself. You're not by yourself. So, and I think it's also critical. I say this to leadership a lot when I engage with folks. It's so critical to follow through. Because if people are vulnerable and tell you what they need and how you can support them, and then you don't follow through, it's worse than not doing anything at all, in my view. Because they feel like, well, why did I share all of that? Because they know what they told you or told a facilitator. So I feel like 
leading by example, you talk about this all the time, leading yourself well. I just was with a CEO who was telling me all the things he's doing to help himself. And he said, how can I help my people do this? And I said, the first thing you can do is share that you're doing it. Lead by example, tell them, hey, I'm struggling. And I've heard you talk about like the 3 a.m. thoughts. I call it like the monster under the bed. And one of the exercises and techniques I do, it sounds a little morbid in a way, but it's so effective. You know, we talk about exercising the COVID-15, like you have to exercise this muscle. You have to figure out what the soundtrack is in your head. So one of the things that I work within organizations with is I'll challenge people, get a piece of paper out and write down the worst thing that you think could happen. And then let's look at that. And is it feasible that that's really going to happen? And if it's not, let's deliberately exit out. One of the top techniques I do is very expensive. I give people a little rubber band and I say, snap the rubber band when you get in that circular place because we're exercising negatively or positively what we're programming ourselves to do. So if it is a possibility that your worst thing could happen, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to possibly lose my house. You know, I've heard all these, all these things this year. It's just so increased. What's your playbook? What's your plan? Let's play offense. Let's don't wait for it to happen. And then in the depths of despair, try to figure out a playbook. So if you lose your house, who are the three people you can call to say, can I be with you for six weeks? Because people will say, I'm afraid I'm going to be homeless and on the street. Well, it would be a terrible traumatic thing to lose your house. But what are the next steps? And let's write them down. Take your power back. So much of what's happening is people are feeling like they have no, no control and no power, right? When you talk about psychologically safe spaces, how do you know if you have one? What do the skills and behaviors look like to be one? Can you go a little bit deeper into that? So the psychologically safe spaces, leadership has to set the tone for this. and what. The hallmark of a psychologically safe space is you attack issues, not people. Attack issues, not people. It's okay to say, you know, Mike, I'm not sure that that approach is going to work, but I'm not going to say, and by the way, I hate your shirt, right? You attack issues. Another huge hallmark of a psychologically safe space is there's no retaliation. So you set the ground rules. And you do this at the very beginning, you set the ground rules. And one of the top ones is we're going to assume and state that everybody's coming from their best possible place. That's one of the first rules we're going to assume. We are coming from our best possible place and making honest contributions. Now, are there bad apples in organizations? Of course there are. But we're talking about how you set the tone for this. When you follow the rules, you can come up with resolutions in ways that you can support your staff. I can give you an example that happened real time with a client of mine. We had a day long retreat and the CEO, it was in the South and the CEO got up and said, and all God's people went to lunch because it was lunchtime. All God's people are going to lunch. And at the end of the day, one person tiptoed out and said, you know, I'm offended because I actually am an atheist and I feel excluded when you all say this colloquialism. And another person got pretty rattled and said, I'm offended that you don't believe in God. I, I do. And the CEO stood up and said, actually, I don't believe in God. I just picked that colloquialism up when I got to this culture, right? It was this whole total misunderstanding and at the end of the day, I looked at the CEO and I invited the two people to pull that thread a little further and said, do you realize you're both actually saying the same thing from a different vantage point? You're just talking about your personal belief and it's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. And at the end of that day, Mike, it was one of the best experiences I ever had. We were in a big convention center. It was a Friday afternoon. And I walked around the corner through the restaurant and they were sitting together having a glass of wine. These two people that were thinking they had nothing in common. So that psychologically safe space, I don't try to get people to come from where you are to where I am. 
I try to do this and get people to the middle. What's a common ground that you can support? And we've talked about this, Kimberly, in, in our podcast, the being honest, right? Speaking the truth in love, act, don't react, attack the problem, not the person. This is what we're discussing. Like if you think about that, stop viewing people as the problem, start getting to know people, right? To engage people, to create, to help people feel valued, heard, and understood. You know, we share often, you might be the first place that someone's ever worked that's asked these questions, right? And you want to talk about a experience of having an employee feel engaged and cared for and valued in your workplace. And oh, by the way, the output from a business perspective of why I should care is it helps you retain, develop, invest. You bring out the best of those people, right? But the trauma, I mean, where, where do you go and share, like, how deep do you go there? I mean, you know, do we want to go up to our employees and say, you know, what trauma are you coming to our workplace with? How do you identify there is, like, what does this look like in the actual workplace of how it's lived out? How you and I and our listeners today, they want to go in tomorrow and say, I want to understand what's actually going on here. How does this feel in the culture? So when you have a leader that's actually invested in this process, it's so valuable. It's so valuable to the employees because my experience, and I'm in my year seven of doing this, my experience has been when you open the door and say, we're going to have, I've gotten to the place where I won't do less than 90 minutes because it takes some time to build this foundation. If you'll give me a day, two days, I mean, I'll take all the time I can get but put people together in a room, outline the ground rules. You know, I call it setting the table. We're all coming from our best possible place and offer the support. Person I was working with last month, they sent out an email and said, by the way, I'm going to authorize overtime pay for anybody that wants to stay for this. Follow it up, set an agenda and communicate to people. The purpose of this is to provide support to you to help if I never hear the word unprecedented again, it'll be too soon, but I don't know a better word. And yesterday, again, was an unprecedented event in the history of the country. And so there's no way this isn't weighing on people. And it isn't the 1970s, right? I remember my mom having to lie and say she was sick to take us to the doctor when we were sick on a work day and going to work sick because that era, you weren't supposed to have a life outside of work. Well, that's just not sustainable or realistic. Something will break, something will give. So communicating to your people, we are going to make a deliberate investment in you in this way because we care about mental health, emotional health. One of the resources that the University of Buffalo has given me that has been invaluable, they're talking about all the different ways that trauma affects you. It's cognitively, it's relationally, it's physically, it's emotionally, it's all these different areas. So you can have employees showing up and sitting at their office. It doesn't mean they're contributing or they're, they're doing anything that's of value. And think about how many people since COVID happened and we all got sent home and started working like this, right? I've had so many people say to me, I have more time than I've ever had and I can't get anything done. Well, that's not because there's something wrong with you. That's real. That's actually happening because cognitively, your brain is dealing with all of this extra stuff. If you think about how much energy you have and it's in a box and you're directing your energy at what am I going to do if my elderly parent gets sick? What am I going to do if I test positive? How am I going to make up for my loss in wages? What You're not going to be able to produce at the level that you could. So providing this kind of support, even for organizations that haven't fully thought that this is something that is valuable, you can actually bottom line it with a dollar figure, the returns. But for me, I just think it's the morally correct thing to do. So is it waiting or watching how people respond and 
saying, hey, I'd love to follow up with you on that. I didn't mean that intent or I think that's not how someone meant to come across or again, I'm thinking workplace wise, right? If I, you know, when the client said this or when this literally happened, something that physically happened, you responded in this way, where did that come from? Everything okay? Why did you respond that way? How did it make you feel? Is that how you unpack that? I have some acronyms that I learned as I was going through my training to become an executive coach that I love. One of them is DAPPER, D-A-P-P-E-R. So the first letter stands for don't fight it, don't ignore it. What do most of us do? Unless you take a deliberate approach to this, it festers. Or there's sidebar conversations, which just adds to the problem and creates a work environment nobody wants. So don't ignore it. Yes, this thing happened at the executive team meeting or whatever. Make an appointment with that person. That's what A stands for. And you're going to tell them, hey, I'm going to come and talk to you about my experience at the executive team meeting today. So you don't blindside them. I call it setting off little bombs. If you walk up to somebody's doorway and just kind of jump right in, right? They don't have time to mentally prepare. And then they're going to start to dread the sound of your footsteps coming down the hall. Like you don't want that. You want to tell them, this is the time. Can I see you tomorrow at one? I would like to talk about the exchange that we had at the meeting. And then you come from a positive place. That's what the first P is. You stay on the positive place. Remember, we're attacking the issue, not the person. And my favorite, favorite tool I pull this out of Dapper all the time. The second P stands for perhaps you didn't know. So you give people some grace and space to back up if they need to. And maybe they were deliberately nasty, but maybe they weren't. But even if they were, if you extend that grace, perhaps you didn't know that when you questioned what I presented to the CEO and it sounded to me like you didn't trust my data or think it was genuine, It didn't leave me any place to go in that meeting. Perhaps you didn't know. And then the E stands for example. So you want a concrete example. You don't want to say, well, on Tuesday this and on Wednesday that. And last week I didn't like how you, you know, you want want one example so we can drill down deep. And then you repeat the process. It's really organizing. It helps you not go down rabbit holes. It's very organizing. It sows trust because most of the time, I have found that people say, I had no idea. I didn't realize that. So perhaps you didn't know. We trigger each other all the time. Mostly we don't know. I have a child that struggles with mental health issues. Years ago, I used to say, boy, the weather's schizophrenic today. Until I had a child with schizophrenic tendencies and started to think, how insensitive. And I wonder how many people. I may have triggered just thinking I was being clever with something I was saying. So just trying to be measured in what you say and do, and then ask for grace when you need it, but always extend grace first. Yeah. Do you find, Kimberly, that this is a, a muscle that's either atrophy or just never work? Like in order to become better at, at this and put this into action, you have to train you have to prepare. I mean, it it is a mental shift in the way some people operate. I remember I was in a um, leadership conference. I've talked about a little bit on our podcast in Queens, New York. The title was Emotionally Healthy Leadership Conference. It was the Emotionally Healthy Leadership Conference. And they gave another example like this. They shared, they actually invited two people on the stage to walk through a conflict that they had. And That conflict was around parking lot duty uh, for an event. And the one party kind of said something with a pretty strong tone because there's a lot of cars. There were things happening. And the two directors of this organization that that was having this event and one of the individuals felt very offended, got emotional and threw a walkie-talkie on the ground and walked away, right? the whole experience was them talking through this. Like when I shared this, it was because it was actually a need. Yeah, but you delivered it in this tone and growing up when this happened, this was the tone that that was delivered to me with. And it makes me immediately shut down. 
Right. right? And it's like, I never knew that. I mean, literally by the end of this experience to this audience, there were probably 237 people watching this conversation. They were both in tears again because neither one of them did like each other. They were coworkers. They're on the same mission. They, but the way you made me feel here and think about this as you're listening to this in our audience, like the conversations you hear, and we all know people in the workplace who just don't get along. Right. And it very well could simply be the tone of which they both naturally communicate makes other people feel in response. And it, in business, think of all the assessments that show how you act normally and then how you act in stress. Right. And what I typically tell people is pay a lot of attention to how you act in stress because all stress isn't bad, but a lot of stress is what we live in, right? Tension, the dynamics that come at us. And therefore, we respond this way. And that one party had no idea he was going to hurt this other party's feelings like he did. There was a deep hurt there because you touched on something that happened to me before. And this isn't the only place of work where I've experienced this emotional outburst that I've had. And again, that person who had the emotional outburst, if we have these skills, there's a place where we finally go, this is the first workplace that ever dealt with this, ever even brought it up, ever shared that it was concerned. Most people just turn the other way and say, I'm not interacting. I don't want to ever be on a project with that person again, right? And that's what we're talking about here, folks. The conversations that we have, the tones that we use. I know over time, even, even in my own place of work with my own team, I've watched our team members say, you know, when you when you say this this way, here's how it really makes me feel. And we always encourage people to take the responsibility for your own emotions and say, you know, I know you don't intend to make me feel this way, but when you say it like this and you follow it up with this additional thing under your breath, here's how that makes me feel. I own my emotion, but I also want to make you aware of how that makes me feel and why. You know, these are these practical things that you can bring into your leadership journeys real time, tomorrow, this evening, this morning, and start leading better, right? Start helping people in this leadership journey. Kimberly, when we talk about trauma affecting the person, does it just show up from emotions? How does that show up physically? It shows up relationally. It shows up emotionally. It shows up physically because, look, when you're upset, from a medical perspective, we know bad things start to happen. Your blood pressure goes up. I had a particular client who their blood pressure was a real issue and they would get so flushed that there was one point where they were like, I ended up in the emergency room after a you know, difficult board meeting. So physically, it can be catastrophic, but it's also cognitively. So we have to learn it. And before I lose my thought, what you were just saying too, when you start these activities, you can own your emotion, but it starts to raise your level of awareness. So the next time it happens, you go like, oh yeah, I remember I did this technique and it really helped me. So it becomes a habit. So you can own your emotion, which of course we should, but how do we figure out? So now we're owning the emotion. How do we diffuse it? How do we diffuse it so that it's actually dealt with and not just stuffed down? So then we go home and we kick the dog and we fight with our spouse and we, we carry it with us and then it, it's toxic. It, it poisons all areas of your life. Yeah, this is such an empire. Remember when we very first, you know, 150 episodes ago when we, when we were thinking about the podcast, like, we talk about relations, relationships, work, community, and life. We believe, Dr. Luce, myself, our faculty, our team believes, when you create healthy cultures and teams and you help people be and feel valued, heard, understood, trusted, you build a culture of trust, they start showing up differently in relationships and community and life, not just at work, right? So when you start using these, and I love what you just said, because you kind of flipped it, 
that it's not just the person who responds. They need to reflect to themselves as well and, and identify, you know, when people say that, I've had enough people who I've offended over my career. Maybe it is me. Instead of saying, maybe it's me, I need to fix myself. Say, why am I responding that way? Right. Why? What's triggering me? And yes. And I think it's so critical that we do set that tone in the workplace and get to a place where early in my career, I worked for a university president and I heard about a board of regent member in a very negative way. It's a long, much longer story. But I remember racing back to campus, like we've got to get the war room back together. We got to come up with a, what we're going to do about this. And I'll never forget, he was senior in his career and he had a great culture where I work. And he looked over his glasses and he said, that doesn't sound like her, does it? And as it turned out, it wasn't true. But in my newness, youngness, I, I just believed it. So when we can say, hey, that doesn't sound like Mike, does it? And then have a culture where it's not only allowed, but encouraged, where I would cross the room and say, what's going on? Can I do anything to be supportive or help? And then maybe your response is, I just found out I have to put my dog down this afternoon. Like, what's going on with this person? And encourage the climate that will allow the employees to be vulnerable. Renee Brown is one of my heroes, you know, that opening the door and there's no retaliation. And make no mistake about it, this is not lost time. This is retaining your employees because they are going to be healthier. They're going to be more productive. Yeah, there's so much to this. I'm, I'm just pulling up for those that are watching the video versus listening. I just, Kimberly, read this quote yesterday. Vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity, and change by Brene Brown. We've all heard that, right? We've all heard that. But in the context of this discussion, this is in my full focus planner. I love that it has quotes throughout the planner. When you're vulnerable, change is more effective. Creativity happens more naturally. You know, I've, I have said so many times on this podcast, I can tell the most healthy corporate cultures that we work with around the world based on the, where the innovation and creativity is coming from right? Because the further into the business, the more frontline and what you just said, the more, and the reason why is because people feel more open to question things, to manage, to confront, to challenge things. And people learn that that's not offensive. That's just how we operate, right? I had one CEO tell me, about five years ago, I'll never forget it. We were in a group meeting with his team. And he was like, if, if executives and leaders on our team aren't uncomfortable coming out of an all leadership meeting, we've not done our job. Right. We should have, and he tell, and they, they tell people this in the interviews, we don't hurt people, but we really want people who get to a point where they were willing to debate we're willing to create tension because when you do that, it brings out the best. Now, when we say this, if you're used to where every time we have a debate, I huddle down and walk away, yeah. right? Instead of saying, well, I just don't like debating. No, there may actually be something there that I need to accept because when I did this then, you know, my assumption is with this is we carry these traumas with us. These are our traumas. We carry them with us our entire life. Yes. Yeah. And if you huddle down and walk away, guess what? You walk away with all of your innovation and ideas and value added. And frustrated at your employer, your boss, your colleague. And for what? Right. Think of how much time, you know, when you break down the 168 hours in a week, I like to get eight hours of sleep. And I like to think, you know, we work eight to 10. Ideally, I know we all need to work a little less. It makes us even more innovative and more creative and more productive. But we spend a significant amount of our 168 hours in the workplace interacting with coworkers. Why are you carrying that burden with you of being upset towards people that you work with, right? So many times people say, you know, it's not about changing jobs. 
it's about figuring out why this tension exists right. and managing through it. Right. right. Because if you go job job searching and you end up in a different corporation and you don't work through this stuff after the honeymoon's over, you're in a new place. I used to hear Oprah Winfrey say, if you don't figure out the relational stuff, you're you're just gonna date a different guy in the same pair of pants. You know, it's just you're gonna recreate it wherever you go because you're carrying it with you. You carry it with you. So if you can figure that piece out and then bloom where you're planted, you know, because there's so there's so much there's a lot of stress involved with job popping, and then of course the organization's their number one cost, right? Yeah, and, and incredible growth comes from this, right? The opportunity, people will see the change. They might see you not react, so knee-jerk reaction. They might, you'll start to understand that that wording used to offend me. It doesn't now, because I know that she doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that. And, or maybe sometimes there was a little bit of that, but because we talked it out, we now, you know, let's not talk to each other in that manner. Let's not bring that tone. Let's not say that phrase because to some people that phrase is actually kind of offensive. Right. So many times, especially in, we obviously talk a lot about valuing all people, race, religion, sexual orientation. There are things that people say that they don't understand. There's people around them that are offended by that because they grew up in their culture, right? Let's start asking the questions about other cultures and trying to figure out even the, you know, the isms, the quotes that we deliver, let's right. evaluate this through other people's shoes. Kimberly, are there other aspects of when you're trying to be more in the trauma-informed mindset, what type of training and resources are structured around empathy? I feel like it's such a big part of this. It is. Again, shifting that knee-jerk, there's something wrong with that person to something has happened to that person because we know things happen to all of us across our lifetime. And so how do you get to the place where the first reaction is what I just explained in that example where you go, that doesn't sound like that person, does it? Now, maybe you're disappointed and find out something is bad or something does go wrong, but that your first place that you land is if you're going to be on the wrong side of the fence, you want to be on the side where you're extending grace and find out that that's not the right that wasn't the right thing. Don't want to be on the other side and then discover, hey, this is what really happened. You're going to make a mistake. It's going to be that you are going to extend that grace and expect the best of people unless you prove it otherwise. Because so many times we get jaded, we go through life, and we end up on that other side of the fence first in every situation. And it's so draining. It's so draining to carry that stuff around. And the diversity and inclusion piece that you hit on is huge. It's huge. And, you know, there's so many ways that you can be excluded. But how do you, I have a friend that always is saying, they made a, a circle to keep me out. I made the circle bigger to let myself in. You know, how do you extend the circles and include people and give people the respect that, you know, this is their lifestyle, their sexual orientation, this is their religious beliefs. How do you support them and also support yourself? And I think part of what we do is we put ourselves at the end of the line. I challenged a group a few weeks ago to say, if I looked at your calendar, what are you doing to support yourself? And I had one person say, you know, I haven't done anything that I used to do since they sent the kids home last March from school. I gave up everything I was doing. So not only this idea of empathy and, and extending it to others, but you have to give yourself permission. We have to be real. We have to say, it's okay if we're mad. It's okay if we're sad. It's okay if, you know, we're experiencing feelings of loss. But one technique that I share with people is, do a complete departure now in this era of COVID. Instead of, I was talking about the holidays, instead of having your usual Christmas Eve dinner and looking across the table and seeing an empty chair where somebody isn't there this year and feeling that sense of loss, do something completely different. Get on your bikes and ride around the neighborhood with your family or 
do something that's completely different than you've ever done and then take the gain and the value added away instead of focusing on the loss. Flip it, flip it on its head and do something completely different. And that's a good technique for getting through traumatic events like the first year after somebody significant in your life dies, something like that. I remember checking on somebody who had lost their son and it was around Christmas and they sent a screenshot back where they had their grandchildren on bikes riding around the Capitol in DC because they just weren't going to do the family tradition. They just did something completely different and made wonderful memories. So it's a value added. For our listeners today, I know there are some of you that see oh, wow, this could be, I I get this, this makes sense. There's probably also some that are like, well, that's not me, you know, but you're carrying a a weight with you that's not necessary. You're, you know, acknowledging why the crassness, acknowledging the reactions that you have, accepting those things. But that doesn't mean, you know, I love the, the Emotionally Healthy Leadership Conference. It says like, that's the top of the iceberg, but it's not the tip. You know, that there's a lot underneath that that's tomorrow, right? We can determine how we respond tomorrow. You can break the cycles. And a lot of it starts with how happy are you at your workplace? Do you have a healthy team? Are you known as the team member that people want to be on your team or not, right? And maybe, just maybe, there's some things that we all can change to be more accepting, to be a better listener. Communicating is different than being an active listener. And we've talked a lot about it. Um, This informs our leadership so much. This builds incredible cultures. Cultures of trust are some that can't be broken. There's opportunity to really elevate and to show up differently at home and in community and in our own personal lives. Talk a little bit about anything additional on increased self-empowerment. Sure. So one of the things I think is critical for leadership to do that helps to self-empower not only themselves, but their employees is managing expectations. I think that that is so critical that this is part of the discussion when you have these forums and you bring this blueprint into your workplace. First of all, we've got to halt the shame game. I love that saying, halt the shame game. I should have, I would have, I could have, right? We're going to give ourselves a break. We're going to extend a break to each other. That's self-empowering rather than it, it gets to the heart of this is a whole other discussion, the imposter syndrome, the whole, the whole thing, right? I'm not good enough. I'm not doing it well enough. One of the things that's really empowering is defining and writing down what does success look like for you? What does a successful day, week, month, year look like for you at work? So that you have something tangible that you can see and follow. You have a pathway, you have a blueprint. And then I like to reverse engineer. Not everybody does, but I like to start with this is what success looks like. This is the goal. I want to publish my book and then work backwards. Okay, here's the timelines I want to hit. Here's what I want to do so that I know if I'm on track. Other people like to work forward. I I just usually work in reverse. And focusing on gains is a huge, a huge way to take your power back, to focus on it. I've seen it, you've seen it on Facebook where people said, well, we had a small Christmas, but here's all the things that were wonderful about it. Focusing on the gains and trying to not ignore because it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to acknowledge these things are really tough. Yesterday was a hard day, right? And I guess I keep saying that if people are watching this later, yesterday was the day that the Capitol had the, the break-in at the Capitol in D.C. It was a difficult day for everybody watching that. How do we focus on the positive? That's what's self-empowering. And make a decision. You're going to take your power back. The self-talk and the narrative is so, you know, it's just, it's so powerful. So people will say, you know, well, I can't do math. I'm just stupid. I, I hate those words. They go, I'm just kidding. And I say, whatever you say, some part of you is listening and it becomes part of your narrative and you've got to take your power back, 
right? Yeah, it impacts us in a great way, more than we know. Yeah. And it, it affects the people around you too, right? It lowers their confidence in you because you're always self-deprecating. It, it, you know, you're always being sarcastic. You know, these are the things you hear come up often. You know, what we're saying is stop, retrace. You know, if you know people that are like that, approach them differently, right? Express again how it makes you feel is different than attacking the person, right? right? You know, attack how it makes you feel, what the problem, what happens there. And then all of a sudden, someone may go, you know what? No one has ever brought that up to me. Yeah. No one's ever shared. I've had people who have shared with me, Mike, there's certain things about my leadership style, communications approach that I wish they would have told me 27 years ago, right? I wish people would have shared 36 years earlier because I've been doing this to people my entire career, you know, and a lot of that comes out. It's no different than when you experience your very first 360. There are things in there that sting, that hurt. And you've got to say, okay, wait a minute. This isn't an attack on me. This is feedback to help me, you know, the blessing of feedback. People gave me feedback so that I could respond. They weren't trying to hurt me. They were trying to give me feedback so I can respond, right? Kimberly, this is such a great conversation. I thank you so much for being a friend, for being a colleague, for bringing your energy and goodness to every conversation that you have and every work that you do. Any additional thoughts as we wrap up here that you'd like to leave with our our listeners and audience today? Well, I would challenge I would challenge the listeners to take a close look at this because it is critical and the benefits from doing the work, showing up and doing this work, they are not things that I would say, I think, or there is data-driven research to prove the value added to organizations when they do this work. And for individuals, I want to challenge anybody that's listening to this podcast, put yourself on your calendar and guard it as religiously as you would guard anything else that you are taking care of for your family, for your boss, for your job. Don't move your time for yourself, especially leaders. Leaders are the worst. Leaders are the worst. They will do everything for everybody else. And I'll say, when was the last time you went to the gym? Uh, Well, I decided to have that uh, extra Zoom call instead of going to the gym, right? Leaders, you have to, and that's part of a a muscle you have to exercise too, where you stop looking at that as indulgent or somehow not as valuable. It's that old adage about if you're, God forbid, on a plane and the airbags come down, what are you supposed to do? Put your oxygen mask on first because otherwise your gas tank is going to be empty. Your emotional gas tank is going to be empty and at some point, some place, it will give. So do you want to play offense and direct what you're doing? Or do you want to play defense when you end up in the ER with your blood pressure going through the roof? So it's just a deliberate approach on how to use your term leading yourself well and then embedding it in the fabric. The last thing I'll say, this institute where I've been receiving all of this information, they have a blueprint for a trauma-informed care approach for the whole organization to train the leadership and then push it down so it becomes part of the fabric of the whole organization. It's deliberate proven training that you can do. So you don't have to, if you're listening to this and think, gosh, I don't even know where to start, you don't have to invent the wheel. There is proven research out there that has been proven to work in many, many spaces. And it, it translates every organization. What is that organization again? That- so it's the University of Buffalo. Their School of Social Work has spun off an institute for trauma-informed care. And so they, in, in this information that's out there, if you have a facilitator take you through it, however you do it, but it's out there and it is their proven researched blueprint that they know is effective. And I know that, the Talent Magnet Institute and Kimberly would love to support you in this. I also, to our listeners, so want to encourage you, there's two books 
that Dr. Luce has written, Circling the Drain, a story of hope, lost children, and finding home. And also, most recently, Losing Your Job Without Losing Your Mind. So I encourage everyone to pick up these two copies on Kindle or hard copy and you know, very much look forward to our next conversation with each and every one of you. Thank you for joining and tuning into this episode. We hope this helps you advance one step further to creating the cultures you desire and bringing out the best of all people. Dr. Luce, thank you again. It's been such a pleasure. I appreciate you and the listeners so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.